everyone. Welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from the United States, Argentina, Brazil, Hungary, and a special see you in hell from Germany after World War II. Starting out in the United States, we now have um, released walkie-talkie evidence. So this is like uh, recordings from conversations that people were having. And these people were some of those who were involved in invading the United States Capitol building on January 6th of last year. Uh, in these recordings, we hear them joking around about murdering congressmen. Uh, specifically, what they're responding to is Donald Trump's tweets during the coup, saying that, you know, that the invaders shouldn't try to avoid hurting cops because, quote, you know, the cops are on our side. Um, and uh, they joked that, like, well, you know, he didn't say anything about congressmen. Ha 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 ha. As in, yes, we are here to assault, kidnap, possibly murder members of Congress at the behest of the president of the United States. Right. That's that's the content of those messages. Further on in the United States, we have had some uh, additional developments regarding Trump's prosecutions and his uh, legal trouble, the, the massive legal trouble that he is in. Uh, regarding the documents that he stole from the White House and kept in his home in Mar-a-Lago, uh, in previous episodes, I've informed you that he got a dispensation, uh, an important legal dispensation, to get a what is called a special expert, uh, which is a sort of like third-party person in uh, investigations like this, whose job it is to determine exactly how secret the documents were that Donald Trump stole. Uh, because, you know, his claim is that, like, well, the prosecution is saying that they're super secret, uh, and so they're not letting anybody see them. So how could anybody know if they're secret or not? Because nobody's allowed to see them, right? Uh, so he got this dispensation. He got the special expert. Uh, but he's now appealing all of this stuff. Uh, he doesn't want anything, you know, he, he's, he's doing more and more, more and more stonewalling. And that's because the purpose of the special expert wasn't to, like, actually determine anything about these documents in particular. It wasn't about actually pursuing any sort of justice or anything like that. It was just a delaying tactic, right? Uh, he and his allies are trying to push things as back as far as they possibly can at every juncture. Uh, so, you know, they don't care uh, about... Any of the legal processes, all that they're doing is uh, throwing up as many smoke screens as they possibly can in order to delay any possible investigation or trial into Donald Trump's seizure of these documents. Uh, additionally, regarding uh, these leaks, uh, an appeals court in the United States has now said that the Department of Justice can resume its investigation into Donald Trump's seizure of these documents. He and his team had tried to prevent this investigation from going forward, trying to delay it as much as possible, but it seems like they're failing a little bit, right? Uh, this appeals court has also specifically refuted Trump's claims that he had previously declassified these documents, uh, and they've said that there's no evidence or reason to believe this. Now, remember that Trump and his allies claim that Either he secretly declassified the documents uh, or that the president, because he's the person who can classify and declassify things and has the highest level of clearance in the country, that the president can just like mentally declassify things, that he can just like decide that something is declassified and not tell anybody. And that means that it's declassified. Um, so the appeals court has said that that's ridiculous and that that's, that's not true and that, that that is not how the law works. Um, Trump and his allies are probably going to appeal that too. Because, of course, their purpose here is not to 
pursue any sort of legal coherence or justice. Their purpose is to delay things as much as possible. Uh, they are also significantly worried about the fact that there is now real possible prosecution on the table for a lot of other crimes that Trump has committed. Uh, for example, the city of New York is uh, trying to pursue some massive financial damages from Trump and his organization. Uh, that is his, his, his business, the business that his family owns. Additionally, uh, multiple counties in Georgia uh, are now really seriously investigating uh, crimes that he and his allies have committed. Specifically, the Fulton County, Georgia district attorney uh, has literally said that, quote, prison sentences are possible for Trump and his allies regarding their behavior immediately following the election. Specifically, these were the calls that Trump and his allies made to people in Fulton County to try to get them to just like change the vote, just, just, just throw out Democratic votes so that Fulton County would go for Donald Trump and that therefore they imagined uh, Georgia might go for Trump. Uh, that wouldn't have been enough anyway in the 2020 election, uh, but it might have made things look a little bit closer for Trump and his allies, and that was what they were trying to go for. Additionally, in Georgia, new security footage has indicated that a fake Trump elector, uh, that is somebody who, who tried to pretend to be a, a representative in the Electoral College for Donald Trump, uh, was part of a breach of a Georgia County's electoral counting room. This is Coffee County in Georgia. Uh, there was a lot of irregularities like that in Georgia uh, on this election day and immediately following it. Uh, and this person like, was, was part of a group of people who just tried to go into this room uh, as they were counting the elections. This was actually a recount that was done in January 2021. Uh, so more and more consequences for Trump and his allies regarding this. Moving on to the rest of the world, uh, Argentina is beginning an investigation of possible collaboration between uh, the attempted assassin of their vice president, uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, and the federal police. Now recall that in Argentina, especially in this particular administration, the vice president isn't just like, you know, the person who becomes the president if the president dies. The vice president in Argentina, and especially Kirchner, uh, is an incredibly powerful position uh, that has a lot of power regarding the cabinet and other ministries and like just like a lot of functions in government. Uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner also is a former president and in many senses is the leader, like the spiritual leader of major factions of her party, uh, as opposed to the leadership of the sitting president of Argentina, Alberto Fernandez. Uh, a couple weeks ago, there was an assassination attempt on Kirchner, uh, which only failed because the assailant's gun jammed uh, after he had pointed it at her head point-blank range uh, and was about to shoot her. And what Argentina is investigating is possible collaboration between this would-be assassin, who we know has ties to uh, neo-Nazi ideology. Uh, so possible ties between this assassin and not just neo-Nazis, but the federal police, uh, which in Argentina has a history of being involved in political violence from its military dictatorship back in the 70s and 80s. Specifically, they want to know why the federal police didn't investigate this dude further, especially considering that he had, pro you know, he, he had uh, been previously picked up uh, for walking around and threatening people with an enormous knife in Buenos Aires. Uh, there was also serious evidence that might have indicated that he was going to try to perpetrate some political violence, and it seems like the federal police 
didn't investigate it. Uh, so now Argentina is in turn investigating the federal police to try to see if he had some collaborators or, you know, possibly more innocuously if uh, they were just being grossly incompetent and allowed an assassination attempt to uh, go on against the vice president in the middle of the country's capital. Moving on to Brazil, the sitting president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, has once again said that if he doesn't win the first round of their presidential election, uh, it'll be because of electoral irregularities. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. One is that Jair Bolsonaro is absolutely not going to win the first round of the Brazilian presidential election. In fact, it's entirely possible that his primary opponent, former President Lula Ignacio de Silva, um, is going to win on the first round, right? Uh, Bolsonaro is polling about 10 points behind, sometimes more like 13 or 12. Um, so it's, it's, it's very unlikely that he's actually going to win on the first round. And it's even unlikely that he will win on the second round. The important thing about this is that Bolsonaro is laying the groundwork for claiming that the election was stolen. He's laying the groundwork for the kind of coup attempts and claims that Donald Trump uh, attempted in 2020. Most Brazilian observers believe that he probably won't succeed at this, like he probably won't succeed at staying the president. But there are a lot of questions and a lot of like different factors at play here, right? The questions are, Will Bolsonaro's supporters care about this? You know, Donald Trump's supporters don't care. Bolsonaro's supporters are disproportionately armed compared to the Brazilian um, civilian population. Brazil is a disproportionately armed country in Latin America. Um, the question also remains, like, if Bolsonaro tries to make these claims, will he get any allies uh, in the, uh, you know, the, the, the business elite of Brazil or in the military? Uh, currently, those people are on the side of Lula, uh, but if it seems like Bolsonaro might be actually trying to commit some political crimes, uh, it's possible that they might turn to him uh, because he might be more permissive of political crimes that they want to commit. Uh, moving on to Hungary, Hungary, uh, led by Viktor Orban, another extreme right-wing figure, uh, is in the process of losing a massive amount of funding from the European Union. Uh, the European Union, much like the United States' federal government, gives money uh, to the smaller countries in it, uh, in order to, you know, like, like perform government operations and, you know, uh, fulfill its governmental functions. Uh, specifically, the EU has said last Sunday that Hungary is going to lose 7.5 billion euros in funding. Uh, that is, uh, almost eight million dollars in funding. Uh, Hungary is now scrambling to meet the requirements. Uh, that would prevent them from losing this money, uh, which are primarily uh, anti-corruption and what Europe calls, quote, rule of law uh, requirements. Uh, what this means is that uh, Hungary has, for some time now, been uh, flaunting its not exactly democratic nature, uh, to the extent that Orban has gone so far as to say that he that his is an illiberal democracy, uh, that it is not as free or as open or as fair. Uh, as most democracies in the modern West claim to be. Now, this is uh, him actually reaping what he has sown. Uh, the EU has been threatening to do this for quite some time. And they are, you know, this is both a carrot and a stick, right? Uh, they're saying like, hey, if you do what we tell you to do, which is like be a democratic and non-corrupt country, you know, that's is pretty, it's a pretty good thing. Uh, then you get this money. If you don't, then you don't get the money. 
Uh, it is also possible that other countries in Europe will be facing similar consequences. Specifically, Poland has been uh, flirting with a lot of these similar problems, and the European Union has threatened them also with similar loss of funding. Moving on to the conclusion of this episode, I'm going to conclude this episode like I do everyone uh, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent fascists in history. Uh, however, uh, this is a little bit different uh, because rather than talking about the death of an individual fascist, I'm talking about the demolition of Spandau Prison. Uh, Spandau Prison was the uh, site in Germany, uh, specifically it is in West Berlin, uh, where the highest level of Nazi war criminals uh, was kept after World War II. Originally, Spandau Prison was a military prison built by the Prussian army in the late 19th century. Uh, it was then used as a civilian prison uh, and was then taken over by the Nazis in the 1930s uh, to imprison political dissidents uh, such as journalists who didn't like Hitler um, and other political actors uh, that the Nazis were opposed to. Uh, those people were then removed from Spandau Prison with the construction of um, what we unfortunately must call proper concentration camps until, until the, the, the real creation of the concentration camp system in Nazi Germany in the, you know, 1941, 42, 43 time period. Uh, Spandau prison was then uh, relatively unused until after the war, when the allies, uh, that is the, uh, the, the alliance of the big four allies, the United Kingdom, France, the Soviet Union, and the United States, used Spandau prison to house the worst of the Nazi war criminals who had been convicted under the Nuremberg laws. Uh, seven of these people were housed in Spandau prison. Uh, three of them uh, had non-life sentences, uh, you know, 10, 20 years, and were released after completing them. Uh, one of these was Albert Speer, uh, the so-called good Nazi, quote-unquote, um, who, you know, then went on to do a bunch of book tours and speaking tours and stuff to try to clear his name and say, like, hey, I wasn't that bad of a Nazi. Uh, I have a good episode about that if you want to go check it out uh, back in the history of this podcast. Three other uh, of these seven prisoners were extremely old uh, and in poor health by the 1960s. And so they were released into the custody of their families, essentially, to die outside of the prison, which meant that uh, for some 20 years, uh, the only prisoner in Spandau prison was Rudolf Hess, uh, a Nazi who tried and failed to secure a separate peace with the United Kingdom in 1941. Uh, against the wishes of Hitler and the rest of the Nazis, uh, he flew alone to the United Kingdom in 1941 and uh, tried to say like, hey, I'm deputy Führer, which he was, that was his position. Um, if you agree to a peace with me, Germany might agree to it, and then we could stop the war right now, and uh, I can stay Führer, and we can stay Nazi Germany, right? Uh, the, the, the British uh, not only thought that A, that wouldn't work, uh, and B, also, he was a Nazi, we're not going to work with him in this way. Uh, so he was kept in prison by the Allies, like already in prison, uh, through the remainder of the end of the war. Uh, he remained in prison for the rest of his life uh, because he was then taken to Nuremberg for trial because he was a war criminal, right? He participated in the crimes of the Nazi regime prior to 1941 when he was still deputy Führer. Uh, he was convicted of you know, of war crimes and crimes against humanity, uh, and he got a life sentence. So he was in Spandau prison uh, alone uh, from 19, 
1966 to 1987 and was in it with the rest of these Nazis who hated him because he had betrayed the Nazi cause, right? Uh, he was with them from the late 40s up until 1966. So this is Rudolf Hess. He's been in prison from 1941 to 1987. Uh, in uh, August of 1987, Rudolf Hess commits suicide by hanging um, after several previous suicide attempts in Allied custody. Uh, the prison was then immediately decommissioned because there was no use for it anymore. Uh, it had only had one prisoner for the last 20 years. Uh, the prison was decommissioned in August of 1987, and demolition began uh, this week in history, September the 21st. Uh, they immediately demolished the prison to prevent it from becoming a pilgrimage site for neo-Nazis, uh, which was it was already on the verge of becoming. So, um, Spandau Prison, we'll see you in hell. All right. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. You can also check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. Uh, you can reach me on Gmail at 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. And uh, also on Twitter at fascism15. Uh, that's 15 spelled out. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week.